Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 58, James Anderson, The Unrealized Promise of Forensic Science. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is James Anderson. James is a senior behavioral scientist and director of the Justice Policy Program and the Institute for Civil Justice at the RAND Corporation. James does research on a wide range of legal topics, including criminal law, torts, insurance, and transportation. He is also on the faculty of the Party Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica. Our podcast today features James's recent article, The Unrealized Promise of Forensic Science, an empirical study of its production and use, which was co-authored with Carl Matthies, Sarah Greathouse, and Amala Voyal-Chari. In it, James and his co-authors tackle a different and often unexplored puzzle of forensic evidence. Much of the recent discussion over forensic evidence has been about its reliability. The concern is that the forensic evidence that we have is not as good as it claims, or not as good as it could be. James takes a different tack. For him, at least when properly done, forensic evidence can provide invaluable, critical evidence in a case. After all, it provides an important check on eyewitnesses, which we know are highly fallible sources of information. So here's the puzzle. Forensic evidence is still only being analyzed in a small fraction of cases in which it is available. The question is, why? James will share some thoughts. James, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. Before we dive into the article, let me ask you to just take a minute to talk a little bit more broadly about the research that you and your colleagues do at RAN in the Justice Policy Program and the uh, Institute for Civil Justice. Thanks, Ed. So really, the mission of RAND is to improve policymaking through research and analysis. And one of the ways we do that in the context of the justice system is through the RAND Justice Policy Program. And in that program, we conduct quite a wide range of research into both the criminal and the civil justice system. On the criminal justice side, the research ranges from virtually really every stage of the criminal justice process, from different policing strategies, to trying to reduce crime through environmental design in some cases, through the courts, through uh, prosecution offices, through community supervision, through the different correctional approaches, through the effect of education in, in prison, prison education on recidivism and, and various outcomes. So there really is a very broad scope of the research we conduct there. Most of it's funded by the National Institute of Justice, but some of it's also funded by the National Science Foundation as well. 
And then on the civil justice side, similarly, we try to look at a broad range of topics that are of interest to civil justice stakeholders. We have the Institute for Civil Justice Board who advises us on topics that are particularly salient and sort of emerging in in the courts. And again, that sort of ranges from everything from, from the role of expert evidence on the outcome of civil matters to the effects of different kinds of emerging technology on the way that courts might adjudicate disputes. So there's really kind of a, a broad range of topics that we have the opportunity to look at. Probably the common denominator is that the research is usually empirical and we try to gather as much data and it usually involves multidisciplinary teams because we really sort of feel that that's a kind of a key and unique comparative advantage that RAND can bring to the research enterprise in this area. So what got you interested in this particular facet of forensic evidence? I think one of the more interesting twists in the article is that it focuses on the production of forensic evidence rather than the usual reliability issues. What got you thinking about production? Well, partly I've tried to think a little bit about the criminal justice system as a true system. I was a public defender for 10 years in in Philadelphia and saw firsthand a lot of the failures of the criminal justice system and, and ways in which it didn't work particularly well. And my wife, does work in trying to improve the reliability of the medical system to reduce medical errors in a large hospital system. And so what was interesting to me was the juxtaposition between this sort of set of analyses that really sort of focused on trying to view the medical system as a system and using a variety of approaches to uh, to reduce errors in that way. And the sort of the lack of similar thinking going on in the criminal justice system, where most of the analyses tended to be very siloed and focused on one particular relatively narrow aspect of the system. And there seemed to be a focus on the sort of heroic individual practitioner, be that the Atticus Finch style criminal defense attorney who single handedly saves the day or the wise judge who can see through the party's attempts to obscure the truth. And, and this seemed to be somewhat similar to the kind of thinking that was going on in the medical system 25, 30 years ago. And in that system, there's been a, a real shift away from a focus on the individual heroic professional towards a much more a team-focused approach, a recognition and a focus on developing processes to mitigate the inevitable human errors that occur and similarly trying to move away from blame finding when in, when errors do occur to trying to again fundamentally change the process so that when errors do occur they don't necessarily affect the outcome and so this is all somewhat of a roundabout way of getting to answer your question which was really forensic science seemed like a potentially very important way of creating what's called a kind of a, a decoupling mechanism in the relevant literature, where it's sort of an, a genuinely independent check and an independent process that doesn't necessarily rely on the exact same individual professionals that the rest of the criminal process does. And so in, in that way, it, it at least has the theoretical promise of providing some tr sort of true independent, truly independent way of improving the accuracy of the criminal justice process. So for your study, you looked at five different jurisdictions, all with basically different crime lab structures. 
what were the jurisdictions and what kind of data did you collect on the jurisdictions to study the process of production? Yeah, yeah. So we looked at uh, San Antonio, Sedgwick County, Kansas, in Wichita, Sacramento County in California, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, uh, where Pittsburgh is, and King County, Washington, where uh, Seattle is. And we collected in those counties uh, information about a thousand or almost a thousand cases in five categories of types of crime, murder, uh, rape, aggravated assault, robbery, and burglaries. And our goal was to really try to understand the effect of forensic science on the outcome of these cases. And in addition to the quantitative data, you also conducted some interviews and you also did an attorney survey. So there, there was a lot of different facets to the data collection process. There was. There was. In, in retrospect, it's, it's possible we bit off more than we could chew. And it was somewhat of a struggle to try to weave a coherent narrative out of the disparate elements. But our hope is that, and certainly it's been my experience, that sometimes when you have multiple complementary studies, you can tell a more complete or a more interesting story than if you just have a single study. Now, I'll tell you, if you asked me before the article, what was the rate at which I thought forensic evidence was collected and analyzed in these kinds of major felonies, I would have thought it to be quite high, almost routine. But that's not actually what you found, right? That's correct. It's certainly true that in the murder cases, it was fairly routine that there was at least an effort to collect evidence and analyze it. But although even that actually depended quite a bit on the jurisdiction. But in the other types of crimes, it was much less common. And again, there were there was also sort of substantial variations by particular jurisdiction, which surprised us. Why do you think that is? Is it simply a matter of cost or the capacity of the particular crime lab? Is it psychological in the sense that detectives are stuck in old ways or they might be worried that the forensic evidence might complicate the case? Is it a bit of both? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And we don't necessarily have a great explanation for that. I mean, one of the things that I'm always surprised by is the sheer heterogeneity of what we call the American criminal justice system. You know, with something like more than 15,000 police agencies, there's just an incredibly wide range of practices and habits and beliefs about how you put together a case, how you investigate it, what you do. And I, and I think this is potentially a, a good example of that kind of heterogeneity. So you're talking about heterogeneity. Tell us a little bit more about when this kind of analysis is in fact being done and when is it not? And are there certain types of forensic evidence that are, for lack of a better term, more popular? They are more frequently done than others. Yeah, yeah. So it certainly depended quite a bit on, on the particular jurisdiction. And just to give you some sort of examples of that, for example, in Sacramento, evidence was collected about 96% of the time in, in homicide cases, whereas in burglary cases, it was collected by about 30% of the time and actually analyzed in burglary cases less than one half of a percent of the time. E even in robbery cases, it was collected about 55% of the time, but only analyzed in about three and a half percent of the time. You know, it's difficult to kind of convey the numbers in a table. I'll, I'll refer you to people who are interested in table four in, in the paper, yeah, but they really varied quite widely. And one of the interesting things that came out of the interviews 
was that going in, I had, a, I guess, in retrospect, somewhat of a naive perspective that much of the evidence and the analysis would have been conducted maybe even pre-arrest, but certainly relatively early in the criminal justice process. And what we discovered was that what often occurred was that the forensic analysis was at least sometimes conducted only after a trial was scheduled. And the primary concern seemed not so much to make sure that the criminal justice process was reliable, but to address juror concerns or perceived juror concerns. And the concern on the prosecution side was often that, well, you know, jurors have come to expect forensic evidence, and we want to make sure that we can say that we conducted those analyses rather than any sort of independent probative value that the forensic analyses would provide. So that was somewhat of a surprise and and in some ways complicated the analysis because it introduced a a potential reverse causality and that what was going on is that the, the strength of the underlying or the perceived importance of the underlying case was causing the forensic analyses to occur as opposed to the strength of the forensic analysis causing the case to go to trial or be prosecuted. This finding is somewhat troubling to me because for two reasons. One is that if you don't collect it, then you can't analyze it. So what you're suggesting is that the analysis often occurs later, but of course, sometimes the evidence is not collected at all. So even if you need the analysis later, you might not have the evidence. The other piece is that it's almost like the cart driving the horse. The forensic analysis is being done for rhetorical, and it's not really rhetorical, but it's really for building a case against a defendant that has already been identified, as opposed to being used for investigative purposes to figure out whether the defendant actually did the crime. I think that's right. And to be fair, you know, it's not really rhetorical. And and it does go to, I mean, one of the obvious reasons we have trials is to put the prosecution to the test and to ensure that there's sufficient evidence. And so the evidence does get evaluated. And the prosecutors we spoke to were quick to acknowledge times when charges were dropped as a result of forensic evidence being found that was inconsistent with the theory of the case that they had. So it's not that the forensic evidence is not playing a role in the reliability of the criminal justice system at all, but it's playing a sort of a, a different role than, than certainly the one that we expected to find when we went into this. Another issue that your study tried to explore was, and this is, goes to your point about causality, whether forensic analysis was correlated with outcomes. Did the forensic analysis drive certain outcomes like arrest or plea bargains or convictions? Broadly speaking, what did you find there? It did, although it depended upon the type of forensic evidence, with DNA evidence in particular being, of course, quite effective. And or maybe not, I shouldn't say of course, really, but that is a intuitively understandable finding. We also found that Forensic evidence did affect plea bargaining because of the reverse causality issue and the question as to whether the fact that it was proceeding in the criminal justice system was driving the forensic analysis rather than the other way around made interpretation of some of the results you know, trickier. You couldn't simply assume that the, the causal error was leading from the forensic science to the criminal proceeding. That was not true in the experimental survey that we conducted, where we recruited a, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but a good-sized sample of defense attorneys and prosecutors and presented hypothetical cases to them. 
and ask them questions about the kinds of plea bargains they would offer and the kinds of plea bargains they would recommend that their clients would accept. And there we found consistent with, you know, with expectations and, and intuitions that the stronger the forensic evidence, the consensus plea bargain, you know, would lengthen. So I'd like to step back for a minute and talk about some of the broader implications to your study. I think it's fair to say that your paper takes a pretty positive view of forensic evidence as this important, more objective supplement to other parts of proof. Is your view that despite its reliability issues, forensics do far more good than harm? Uh, I think it has the potential. I don't want to be naive about the reliability issues and the ways in which many forensic labs are set up makes the true independence of those labs problematic. And there's certainly been no shortage of instances where there's been either shoddy lab work or work that just that hasn't been truly independent. That said, I think the potential for forensic science to serve as a truly independent check an independent uh, decoupling device, as, as I mentioned before, means that we should take it seriously and not be so cynical about the potential for it to serve that function that we disregard the, the hope that it might. One question I had for you was, if there was one context where you'd like to see a greater use of forensic evidence, both collection and analysis, where would that be? That's a good question. I don't have a terrific answer to that. I think there is still considerable potential to use forensic evidence earlier in the criminal justice process. One of the problems, though, is, of course, that there is a lot more demand for and, and that the way the reason that the system has evolved the way it did is in part because there's a there's a real shortage of forensic testing facilities. And so in some ways, again, it, it only makes sense if you can only test pretty limited evidence to save those tests for cases that are going to trial. And so I think it would be helpful to increase forensic testing capacities so that more forensic evidence could be tested. And so it could potentially fulfill this role of being a, a more independent decoupling mechanism to increase the reliability of the criminal justice process. You know, so for example, DNA testing technology has gotten much less expensive and much less labor intensive just over the last few years. So there's some hope that technology can play a role in trying to increase the productivity of forensic labs. There are also parts of the system that were, for example, most of the labs we dealt with, most of the sample processing was done in a relatively laborious paper intensive way. So there weren't necessarily integrated data systems. That's something that, for example, I, I think there may, may be a low-hanging fruit in terms of ways of improving the productivity of, of crime labs to make forensic testing more widely available. Yeah, so the article does talk a bit about how to increase availability. You talked about the information management systems to increase productivity. I think you also talked about the use of fee-based systems or fee-based laboratories to increase clearance rates. And that might have something to do with incentives or something to do with prioritization of different cases. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't think we are drawing any non-obvious economic conclusions, but fees seem like a potentially useful way of creating the appropriate prioritization of the right cases. 
But of course, there's potential downsides with that too, right? I mean, you probably don't want a system where richer police agencies get to do all the forensic analysis they want, whereas potentially smaller and less well-off departments can't afford to do forensic testing. And that's something we haven't really had a chance to think through very thoroughly. But some more analysis and thinking about the best institutional mechanisms to facilitate forensic testing in the best way possible would potentially be useful. Final question for you. What's next? Are you planning additional research in this area? We're actually doing some, I don't know if I'd call it follow-up work, but somewhat related work on the use of moderate stringency analyses in for DNA testing. This is an interesting topic because on the one hand, so this comes up in at least two ways. One, if the police collect either a mixed or degraded sample of DNA, what conclusions can you draw from that? How do you handle that? And what do you do with it? And then the other similar topic or related issue is whether you permit what's been called uh, familial testing, where you have a sample there's no one in the DNA database that is a direct match for that sample. But if you change the algorithm you're using, you can potentially identify relatives of someone in the DNA database. And on the one hand, this is a potential a phenomenal tool to identify suspects that would for very serious and terrible crimes that would otherwise potentially not be caught. On the other hand, there are concerns about this being a sort of Orwellian genetic surveillance where particularly African-Americans are disproportionately represented in the DNA databases that exist. So there's an equal protection issue as well. So anyways, this is something we're uh, working on now. We're doing, we have a team member who's in the UK and is going to discuss and has been conducting interviews there. It's going to discuss the way they've approached this issue, as well as we're looking at a few different states and how they're thinking about it as well. Well, James, thanks for coming to talk about the production of Forensic Evidence. Great having you on the show. Thanks, Ed. I really appreciate it. What has always attracted me to James's new article is that it takes a different perspective on forensic evidence. Much of everything written on forensic evidence these days focuses on its reliability problems. And while those problems are important and should be addressed, it's easy to forget the promise of forensic evidence. As James describes, that promise is to provide an independent, decoupled source of information, a check in some ways on the rest of the investigative system. There is, of course, the conventional non-forensic path to conviction, consisting of eyewitness accounts, confessions, and the like. But social science has shown us that that conventional path has its perils. Done properly, forensic evidence could provide us with some independent confirmation. But to fulfill its promise, forensic evidence not only has to be reliable, it also has to exist. And James's research shows that our production of forensic evidence is still rather anemic, particularly in the arguably critical pre-arrest or even pre-plea settings. Much of this boils down to economics, and thus I hope that future work will look into some of James's findings that the presence of information systems and fee-based processing improves productivity. Only by making forensic evidence better and cheaper can we hope to capture its promise. 
I'm delighted to see James and others in the Academy recently taking a more systems-oriented look to criminal justice. I suspect we've only scratched the surface of what that perspective has to offer. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you will join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.